What's up, everybody? Welcome back to Helmet Theory Podcast. It's Matt. And Matt. What's up, everybody? Nichols, how did I do on not being monotone? <laughs> we just had a conversation, everybody, about how we should start this thing. And I literally said, yeah, we should start it. Just Let's just start this out and not be so monotone when we start out. But I feel like... Kind of funny. Yeah, I feel like when I'm doing stuff like that, I kind of sound monotone. All right, Ryan, are you with us? I'm here. Everybody good? All right, cool. Hey, everybody, we've got our good buddy, Ryan Mayfield. What's up? Mayfield, I was a little torn on how to introduce you. Like, what angle are we coming from talking with you today? And I realized you are sort of doing like 11 things right now. So Something like that. Start out, just tell a bold-faced lie about me. A bold face. Oh, okay. Two, uh, okay. Two truths and a lie. Isn't that the game? Okay. Three facts. Are you ready? Ryan lived in India. Ryan. Um, oh boy. I'm sucking at this. I can't think of two more things. Oh, oh, I know. Okay. Two truths and a lie. So there's your first one. Ryan has a hidden piercing <laughs> and uh and Ryan hates whiskey. Yeah, that was two lies and a truth, my bad. <laughs> yeah, I don't know if that's going to be your game. That's not my game. <laughs> I thought I was gonna be really good at that because I was like immediately I had had you the fun trivia. Off so excited about that opportunity, yeah. <laughs> and it did not it did not go well. Well, I was thinking, yeah, exactly. I was thinking that uh, you know I've got the trivia with you living in India. And then I was trying to think of others, and then I just blanked, man. And then I went into some weird place with piercings and right. My mind which, went to a dark place whenever you said that, <laughs> dude. Mine did too. I don't know why that is what came to mind, but I did think it was funny because if I had one of those, like you, you know, you wouldn't know about it. You could have accidentally told two truths and a lie. Um, <laughs> but, but I definitely, I was referring to nipple rings. What are you guys talking about? I'm not even going to say <laughs> cartilage anyway. Okay. Ryan, let's get into the, <laughs> let's get into the meat. So, uh, Oh, really? Really? I'm not editing this out, by the way. Okay. We either just gained listeners or we lost listeners, and I don't know which. This is off the rails early here, guys. Before we talk about God and life and faith and Enneagram. <laughs> All right, so Ryan, give us a briefing on the things that you're doing. Um, I, it's really hard for me to think about, but um, I guess... There, I think there's two angles that I'm interested in talking about with you today. The first one is just your experience um, with church and what we call missions. And because uh, one of the truths was we didn't even tell what was the truth and what was a lie because it was probably so obvious. But you did live in India and you were a part of a ministry team ish. I don't, I don't even know if that's a fair, whatever it was. And then the second, all that, that's a world I want to dive into. And then the second thing I'd love to hear about at some point in no particular order is Enneagram stuff. Cause you are, uh, you are becoming the new Richard Rohr from what I understand. <laughs> uh, I could only hope to, to get halfway there at some point. Uh, Richard Rohr is one of the people that, man, if I could end up 
half, you know, half of Richard Rohr by the time that I die. I count that as a success. Um, but yeah, so I, um, I did a lot of things. You mentioned India and I did several different things there. Uh, had a, a few different jobs, uh, actually worked in the coffee exporting industry for a while, did some retail stuff with Walmart, um, traveled a lot, joined a couple. You were a professional freaking football coach. Oh yes. I also coached professional football and college basketball while I was there. That would have been great for the game earlier, by the way. Like, <laughs> like not American football, soccer. Uh, no, 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 American football. I coached a professional American football team for a season while I was there. And then I coached a college basketball team as well while I was there. Have um, you played either of those sports? Not at a college or professional <laughs> level, <laughs> but I did grow up playing them. And, That's awesome. Um, and that, that helps a lot, especially with the American football part, because, you know, they don't play football there. Uh, it's a it's a really new thing, and so just the fact that I had grown up with it made me an expert, you know, in the region, you could say. So uh, I did a lot of those things and a few other things, and but the whole time while I was there, one of the big reasons why I even went in the first place was because I knew that that was a place that I could connect with people who were outside of and not interested in the church world, right? Uh, people that did not consider themselves Christians, and and I could just have those conversations with those people who who didn't already have that kind of a background, and I don't mean like conversion, right? I wasn't trying to convert people and make them into something or force them into anything like that, but um, but yeah, that's um, that was a big reason for me to be there. I remember when we first met, that was a big point of our conversation because I was on staff at a church. You were just coming back. To the U.S., I don't remember how long you've been back, um, but I do remember us talking about the idea of being a Christian and, you know, explaining the faith to other people in in a way that wasn't, "Hey, come be an American Christian." And I think talking to you was one of the first times that I started to kind of understand that a little bit more. So I, um, I feel like I've almost gained a reputation for ruining Christians. Um, <laughs> I feel like if if you hang around me too much. I'm liable to, to ruin some Christian things in you. And what I mean by that is, you know, <laughs> that cultural religious Christianity. And not that I think that it's wrong to be a Christian, but I also know that Jesus wasn't one. And because of that, I don't think that I need to force people into that box. Um, Jesus. Would, okay. Before people turn this podcast off, explain what you mean. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I mean, man, Jesus was a Jew, right? <laughs> like Jesus was a Jewish man, and uh, he never once set foot in a church or, um, you know, sang any of your favorite Christian hymns. Uh, you know, he, and not to say that those are bad or wrong. I think there's a place for that, and there's people who engage with Jesus in that way. But I also know that Jesus and his uh, disciples, or his apostles rather, were, were Jewish. But even when he came across people who weren't Jewish, he never even pushed people into becoming Jews. In fact, the ones that tried to, he told them no and sent them back home uh, to their people, to their family, and told them to, to follow him, but that that didn't mean they had to convert some cultural you know, aspect of their life, uh, just the focal point of it. So a good example of that, that I remember you telling me about, 
Um, and I'll let you talk more about it because I think the way you articulate it is better, as is with the case with most things that we talk about. Um, so you would describe to me, I, you know, when I heard about mission work, as we typically talk about it, it's go to whatever place and then you know, I've seen it a lot of ways, do chores, rebuild things, knock on doors, do skits, the whole backyard Bible, th- whatever that's called. The bridge. Y- yeah, sharing the bridge. But like the point being, hey, come, here's a creed for you and then we'll give you a way of life to live by moving forward. But you're saying your agenda was not to convert them. So what does that look like? I mean, so you went to India. So what does that look like? Because that's, we're talking completely different religious perspective over there. Yeah. I mean, for me, it's being a person, right? Being a human who is, you know, loves Jesus as much as I can, right? Uh, On my good days and going about life and doing my job and meeting people and interacting with people and, and loving on whoever's around me trying to live, you know, in a way that, that Jesus teaches, knowing that I never will, but also following in that same, you know, way of Jesus that doesn't force people into some religious box. Right. And so for me, you know, I'm making friends at a coffee shop or at a university that I live near to, or at my favorite restaurants or whatever it is. And, you know, I say all this and it sounds like I'm just the most outgoing person, you know, meeting people everywhere and, and I'm not at all. So it's not even like, I'm not going to say, you know, I went there and saw hundreds of people start following Jesus. Right. Uh, that's, that's not even what I'm after. Uh, I've got two guys that I'm still really close friends with right now that, you know, a couple of, they both just texted me within the last two weeks. And these dudes are Hindus who follow Jesus. That's what they do. They look like Hindus. They act like Hindus. They eat like Hindus. You know, they sing and celebrate like Hindus, but all of their devotion is towards Jesus. And, and I don't think there's anything wrong with that. Uh, And I don't think that the Bible or Jesus says that there's anything wrong with that either. Now Christians and the church might have an issue with that. uh, But, uh, but Jesus and the Bible don't. So one thing Nichols and I talk a lot about, is deconstruction um, in in regards to our faith. You know, Nichols and I, over the course of the last few years, I mean, you've been present for a lot of this, but basically we just started asking a lot of questions and we started not being afraid to ask questions and not being, a, not being afraid to maybe poke a hole in something that we once held really close or true or as doctrine or whatever. One thing I notice is that the the church in mass right gives a lot more leverage or not leverage but like space or time to process like what you were saying to people who are outside of the west like whenever you are saying you're a Jesus person and you go off to some far away place and you do weird things like sit on the floor and sing songs instead of in pews or whatever it is the church in the West is more okay with that, but how dare you try that in Missouri or Kentucky or Arizona, (laughs) right? Like God is not okay with that, even though it was completely fine whenever we were, or maybe not even completely fine, but I find that 
the conversations that I've had uh, when I lived there, the conversations I had <clears throat> with people back in the U.S. were there was a lot more grace and a lot more ability for people to listen and uh, and take in what I was saying about how I was living my life and the people I was around and all those things. But if you try to have those same conversations while you're on this side of the pond, no, 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 we've got this church system. This is how it's supposed to go. It's like, you, why do you no think that is? Well, it almost feels like we think, and we as in Christianity in the West, feel like we've got it figured out. Whereas when you go across the pond, it's like they don't have it figured out yet. So, yeah, go ahead and adapt a little bit and help them figure it out. For the record, it's not even at this point, it's not even just a Christian thing. It really is a Western thing. I mean, as much as I love America and love the things that I get as an American or whatever, we do have a bit of, I don't know how, what you would describe, an elitist mindset. Or I, don't, I don't know what you would call it, but. Well, it's a it's a colonial kind of mindset, right? But it's also um, a good way I've heard it described before is like Viking evangelism, right? Like you got your Vikings that have their home base and they they leave home base and go out and attack this or that or whatever, and then try to bring the spoils back home. It, and conquer. Kind of, yeah, yeah, absolutely. And, you know, it's this idea that America is like this Christian nation, right? That if we could just get everybody to act like we do, then that's the right way to do it. But in reality, first of all, America is not very old compared to many, many, many countries and civilizations around the world. Um, and even the Western church model in America is not very old. You know, at some point in fairly recent history, the things that are completely normal and and assumed in churches in America today were considered complete heresy by the larger church in the world, right? Like the most, you know, famous hymns that uber traditional churches in America right now sing were converted bar tunes at one point, right? That there were all these heathens in the bar out in the wild, wild west who were singing these bar tunes to strippers and drunk people. And somebody came in at some point and changed the words to be about Jesus rather than to be about, you know, the, the girl on stage. And, you know, at some point that was, that was just complete and utter filth and heresy and the church would never be okay with that. And now uh, we just assume that that's right and normal and that anything that doesn't fit in that is complete heresy and filth. And, you know, and so, C.S. Lewis calls it chronological snobbery, where we think that, you know, we have it figured out in our day and age. And, um, man, it's just so arrogant. I almost feel like I, I've had to undo, I've had to undo a lot of that elitist, elitist, like, I'm right, the way that we've always done it has been right, like traditions passed down, all that. Like, I feel like I have finally come to a place where I'm like, yeah, I don't know about all that it's almost like what Jamal is talking about where the Bible even just instructs us to live like Jesus lived. He said, I am, and you are like pretty much, you know, like we were meant to live instead of have these structured things where we all are saying, Nope, this is how we do it. This is how we're going to do it. And this is how it's always going to be done. The fact that church churches in America 
well, a lot of churches in America are trying to do the same things they've been doing for 50 years until it's, it's almost like, no, we're going to do things that we've been doing for 50 years until everybody comes to the same page. And it's like, wait, so is it wrong until we all agree that it's not wrong? You know, right. That, I mean, that kind of is how it happens though. If you look, I mean, even in the last 30 years, I mean, I remember when mega churches were not really a thing. I mean, there were big churches. <clears throat> the term mega church didn't exist that I know of, but there were kind of the two big ones. There was uh, within the evangelical community, there was, uh, what's the purpose-driven church? Uh, Saddleback. There was Saddleback and Willow Creek. And those were two of like the dominant major huge churches that were cutting edge. And I remember when they were when their pastors were doing things and leading the movement, people across the country, it was kind of a split. There was the ones that were like, wow, this is great. We have permission to do X, Y, and Z and be creative and this and that. And the rest of the people were kind of like, you can't do that, which I, I wish that you can't do that wasn't the com- a common theme that I see. Um, that should be a Christian creed. You know what I mean? I, you can't do that. It, I, yeah. I hate that, but I mean, that's sort of how I feel sometimes. And I mean, again, I'm not trying to crap on the church or anything. I feel like I can be hard on my own people though. You know, this brings, this brings us to what, what you called me about earlier. Like if you want to kind of help explain a little bit of what you're talking about as far as like, yeah, do you know what we were talking about? Yeah, Ryan, I'll, I called Nichols earlier. I was driving home and I said, hey, man, I need to unpack something. I've just been thinking and I need to get it out before I forget or don't fully process it. And so I'm going to I'll describe to you. What I told him and I'd love to hear your thoughts. Um, basically, I was thinking about how uh, if anybody makes some sort of a claim, you know, the sky is blue. God is real. Dr. Pepper is good. Whatever. Uh, the burden of proof lies within the the person that made the claim. You know, if I say God is real or God is triune or hell is real or fake, or it's my job then to explain that. The burden of proof is now with me and I need to explain that. And so then I was thinking about how I read an article recently about people who are like buying houses and cars, I think is what it was. And they were talking about how people go in with sort of a minimum you know, this is how much we're going to spend. Here's the basic things we need. Uh, and then what happens is there's a few bells and whistles. Any good salesman is going to throw in some bells and whistles. Hey, you can have this and for a little bit more, it comes with this. And so what happens is most people get in that situation and they compromise on their budget or on some of their baseline values that they had set. And what they do is they begin to justify the expense well, you know, we would use this Bluetooth, blah, 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 in our car. So, I mean, that would be good to have. Now, all of a sudden, they've justified that that price increase. And so now it's not a, oh, we spent more. Now it's, well, we needed that, you know? Well, it'd be and nice so take, to have that, that sensor go off whenever I go over the white line for an extra 10 grand. Right. And so then you take that back to the burden of proof and people sifting through beliefs and stuff like that. And it's almost as though... People didn't, uh, most of us who were handed our beliefs, which most of us were, it's not like a negative thing. All of us were given our beliefs and then we did what with them what we wanted. But it's almost like many of us didn't take that responsibility, that, that, that burden of proof. Like if I say that 
Jesus this or God that. I need to I need to sort of know and be able to articulate that a little bit. But what we do is, I think, is we do kind of like you do in the car scenario and you go, eh, you kind of start to justify whatever you believe and, and, and build the narrative around it. In the case of growing up in the South or in, you know, the West speaking globally, there are social implications to saying hard things. You saying the words, Jesus wasn't a Christian. That's a bold statement because when some people hear that, they don't care about anything after that. Many of us believe things and we don't we don't fully understand it or we just it's easier to believe X, Y, or Z. And so we just build the narrative around that. I don't know if any of that's making sense. Well, I actually just had a thought to add to that. The burden of proof with Southern Western evangelical Christianity does not lie in the person. It hasn't for a long time. It should, but for a lot of us, the burden of proof lies in the tribe that you belong in and whoever's tribe is bigger. They feel justified that they're right. Well, yeah, it doesn't matter if they're right or wrong because the numbers inflate the perception of truth. Right. It's almost like a gang mentality of my gang's better than your gang. Like <laughs> bloods are better than Crips. Crips are better than bloods. Y'all don't come at me. Now, which <laughs> which position are you taking, Nichols? <laughs> you have to declare which side you're on. I just got real uncomfortable. <laughs> <laughs> when I said that on the phone. I'm with the Jets personally. So when I called Nichols, I articulated that way better because it was fresh, but does any of that compute? Are you tracking with any of it? If so, just grab something because I know I don't make a lot of sense. So I think I think I understand what you're saying. Um, Hep, you know me a, a little better than Nichols does, and and I just don't. There's some waters I don't swim in, and that like church versus church, denomination versus denomination thing is not anything I've ever really understood or been able to comprehend um and so like the idea of burden of proof you know i'm i'm saying this and i feel like i'm saying that i've arrived at some greater plane or something than than other people and i don't mean it to sound that way at all it's been you know a, a gradual progression and i'm sure that 10 years from now i will look back at the current version of me and realize i did not have nearly as many things figured out as i thought i did right we can only hope. Well, yeah, I was about to say, that's, the, that's the hope. <laughs> Thanks. I appreciate your confidence in me, both of you. Um, <laughs> but what I think about when, when I just hear like the burden of proof argument, um, I don't feel any burden of proof. <laughs> I don't honestly, like I don't care if somebody thinks I'm right or not. Like I care what I think. And and I know that's, you know, different from person to person, but even that, what I think doesn't actually matter, right? Like if I look at something that's blue and I call it purple, right? Or I call it green or yellow or red, it doesn't change the fact that it's blue, right? And and so even what I believe doesn't really matter or affect what truth is. Um, and I think truth is a person and his name's Jesus. And I don't have any other cards to play. 
that's what I've got. And that's what I'm going off of. And that's not any church denomination or set of doctrines or beliefs or, you know, anything like that. I, you know, not to say that those things are bad and I'm with you. I'm not trying to crap on the church. I think there are um, hundreds and thousands and millions of people probably that need a church structure to engage faith through. And so I'm completely fine with that. I'm not trying to, you know, pee in anybody's Cheerios, (laughs) you know, Mm -hmm. like people can do what they need to do. But I also know that there's a lot of people who have no interest in the church structure and will never uh, do that. And to me, those are the kinds of people that Jesus really got himself in trouble hanging out with, right? And uh, and that's who I want to hang out with, and that's who I want to be for. I want to be for the person who has slept with way too many people to show up in a church service and the bartender who doesn't get off work until 4 a.m. on a Sunday morning and the person who, you know, has grown up in a family that's not Christian and has no idea what the heck anybody's talking about when they go to a church service or like that's, that's who I see Jesus hanging out with. And Jesus is my only card to play. Yeah. And I, I think that more than talking about the burden of proof itself or any one person or denomination's ability to back up their belief, I think really what I was thinking about earlier anyway, I was just thinking about how many of us, we do have such a concrete version of Christianity. I mean, this is how it is. It's very static and it looks different from denomination to denomination or person to person. But the problem that I'm running into is that I've, I'm meeting and have met and have been this way myself. Tons of people who they do have that very concrete idea of faith and Christ and God and all things under that. And it's like, surely you can't have all of that figured out. I've met biblical and historical scholars who don't claim to know as much as some of the Christians like myself have claimed. You know what I mean? And so at that point, I just go, we've built this narrative where we can't have a question mark, or we can't just say something and be wrong later. Yeah. And I found so much freedom. That's what Nichols and I are always talking about. We're not afraid to be wrong anymore. You know, I could say something on this podcast with you and say, yeah, blah, 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 this theology thing or life thing. And I might not think it next week. And I might on the next episode completely change my mind. And I'm not only okay with that, but I invite it. Oh yeah. Well, and again, I'm going to go back to my Jesus card, right? Like, you know how many times Jesus actually gave a straight up statement of fact answer when people would ask him questions? Very little. Like he answered questions with more questions is what he did. Um, And Jesus just wasn't interested in getting all the answers to all the questions. He was interested in showing people who he was. And that's a completely different way to live. Um, When you have concrete answers, the reason why, that doesn't work is the same reason why nothing is made out of pure concrete, right? Like if you have a bridge that's pure concrete, it will fall. That's why there's gaps in between slabs of concrete. If you have a building that's made out of pure concrete, it will fall. That's why it's reinforced with rebar and has different spacing things so that it can change with hot and cold weather. And like, I mean, concrete itself, if anything is in solid form, just straight concrete, it cannot stand up to the real world. 
And so it has to be flexible. It has to have gaps, right? Gaps are the only way that those buildings and structures exist. And faith is the same way. It's not meant to be solid. It's meant to have gaps. It's funny that you say all that, Ryan, and, and uh, this, this whole topic. Whenever I was building the fence that we talked about a couple episodes ago. Oh, yeah. I heard uh, about the fence. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it was fun. <laughs> By fun, I mean it was terrible. I have a neighbor that actually helped me periodically dig post holes and stuff like that. And different neighbor than on that episode. <laughs> way different neighbor. Yeah, she. Yeah, that wouldn't happen with that lady. But this neighbor, he uh, was just became a friend just through working on the fence. We we discovered, or I discovered that he was atheist. We, we got to talking about stuff. He, he starts asking me, well, you know, what do you believe? What do you, how, where do you land on all of that? And I, you know, I told him, yeah, I'm a Christian, but I say that kind of loosely. And I told him I was a pastor. I, I did this. I did that. Where I've landed now is I, I, I'm free to ask a lot of questions. I don't believe like I used to. And by the end of it, he's like, wow, this is kind of refreshing. And, and I was like, why? Why is it refreshing? Just It was a really honest great conversation. You know, he, he said, man, it's refreshing because the reason I consider myself an atheist is because of Christians that I've known in the past and I don't want to be anything like them. At the end of it, he actually called us a few weeks later, you know, him and his wife were wanting to go to church somewhere because his wife was wanting to go, like she grew up Baptist and this and that. And, uh, wanted to know if we wanted to go to church somewhere and if we knew somewhere and we were, we were just like, nah, we don't really, we don't really go very much at all. So he's like, okay, cool. I don't think we'll go either. <laughs> but Wow, you really just screwed that up, dude. You suck at evangelism, bro. Well, I mean, I would rather him know a genuine, honest, like real relational Christian than go to church because he feels like he has to. Mm. You know, like mm-hmm. that's how I feel about it. No, I so get I that. Like relate a lot, Ryan. Yeah, I get that. And I think that's cool, man. I think that there's a cool opportunity for a relationship there with you guys just to continue to be honest and real and, and love on this dude. Right. Uh, and you know what, if he and his wife want to find a local church to, you know, get plugged into, I say with the air quotes, cause that's the correct terminology these days, I think, um, <laughs> you know, then man, then great. help them out even like, I don't, you know, whatever it is that they're looking for, the thing that I that gives me a lot of peace with the whole conversation is that I do believe one of the things that I believe that hasn't changed is that God is really big and God is very much in control. And so if the path for them is not some local church set up, then they can go try everyone that they want. And that's right. not where God's going to lead them. And so, man, help them. You know, there's I think there's probably some good local church, you know, communities in your area. And so, man, if that's what they want, hook them up. And if it's not, I mean, but regardless, like either way, whenever all this, you know, quarantine madness is over, invite them over for dinner. Right. Like, and, and see what they need right now. You know, right. That's what I think that's what we need to be doing rather than focusing on, how can I get this person to attend some service or event? What do they need right now? Do they have enough freaking toilet paper? <laughs> you know, yeah, like, yeah. and hook them up. 
because I think that's what Jesus would care about. We, we focus, man, we major on the minors and we minor on the majors when it comes to the church world. Um, we're very concerned about things that are barely even in Jesus's radar and very unconcerned about the things that seem to be right at the dead center of it. And, and for the record, I don't think that I was right a hundred percent by doing, by that whole situation, but it was very interesting to me because that was one of my first interactions. I don't think there's right or wrong in that situation though. You know what I mean? Not that I there has to be. Yeah. I don't think there has to be at all. Like, I think that probably if you would have asked me a couple of years ago or a year ago or six months ago, whenever I would have said, certainly, yeah, you made the wrong move. That dude is lost and you know, we need to get him. Yeah. <laughs> I don't even understand some of that anymore, to be honest with you. Well, but right or wrong is a judgment call and only a judge gets to make a judgment call. Right. So, so if you're trying to declare something right or wrong, you got to ask, Who's the judge in this situation? And so often in the church world, the judge is the church. And nowhere in Scripture is the church supposed to act as the judge. Jesus is the only one that gets to judge. And he says, I'm out of the judgment game, right? I died for it. I'm hanging up you know, my cleats. I'm closing up shop. I'm gone fishing, <laughs> right? Uh, he's out of the judgment game. And so he, if he's the only one that gets to judge and is out of the judgment game, then right or wrong isn't even a conversation. Right. I think that's a good, uh, I, I think it's a really great point. So I wanted us to move into another direction that I know you're really passionate about, which is Enneagram. And I know that's a very sudden transition. Sorry, everybody. Speaking of Enneagram. I got to go get my neck checked out. I think I might have whiplash. Okay. So how did you, what is it? How did you get involved in it? And and why? Like, why are you passionate about it? I this can't wait to hear you Wiccan occult thing where we all just, <laughs> no, I'm kidding. Um, uh, I've only been accused of witchcraft once since I started this whole Enneagram stuff. So oh. I feel like that's a pretty good batting average. Um, so for the person who has been living under a rock for the past several years and doesn't know what this Enneagram thing is, first of all, welcome to podcast. Cause this has to be your first one at this point. <laughs> welcome to podcast. It's so true though. Congratulations on figuring that out. The Enneagram is a personality typing system. Uh, it's more than that, but that's one of the quickest ways to explain it. So the basic idea there being that people are not that everybody's the same, but that you can kind of filter people's basic personalities into a few different common buckets. Uh, the Enneagram has nine and it's kind of nine different views of the world, nine different normals, nine different ways of seeing the world and people around you. And so there's nuance within all nine of those. And, and just because you have the same basic Enneagram profile as somebody else doesn't in any way mean that you are the same, that you act the same, think the same, or feel the same as that person. Um, they're just kind of starting points for that conversation. It goes much, much deeper than that. And so the best way I've probably heard it explained is nine different lenses or nine different normals for how we see and interact with the world. How'd you come across it? I've been through a lot of the different like 
personality driven kind of leadership development type things, whether that's disc or Myers Briggs or strengths finders or Berkman, or, you know, there's a bunch of other ones. Right. Um, and Enneagram was just another one of those that I uh, encountered as I was in different leadership circles. And honestly, I was pretty skeptical of it. Um, but what actually brought me uh, to the place where I was more open to it was first of all, that it talked about some things that, that the other ones didn't not a knock on any of the others. I think they all have their place and they all have value, but disc and all those others seem to talk more about what you do, you know, the way that you behave. Whereas Enneagram, I think when taught in a proper way examines uh, and exposes a little bit more of the motivation, the why behind what you do, right? The deeper core things. Yeah. It's way more in depth for sure. It, it's so much more or so much less surface oriented, right? Um, because you and I may do the same exact thing, but we may do it for very different reasons. And so what we're talking about with Enneagram are the reasons. We're not looking forward like, you know, a crystal ball into the future. We're looking backwards like an x-ray uh, at, at where things have gone wrong or where we- So that you can make adjustments, Right. Right. And I mean, and that's, that's the whole deal with like an x-ray or an MRI, right? Neither of those things heal you. They just show you areas that need attention. And so the Enneagram, I think when taught correctly does the same thing. It's not a magic, you know, crystal ball to see the future and it's not something to fix you. It's not a silver bullet to fix all your problems. Right. But it can function as a very, very incisive x-ray or MRI right? To reveal some places maybe in your life and soul or however you want to phrase it that, that needs some attention. And so for me, there was that. And then there was also the aspect that it just stuck around, right? Like if you've ever been through any of those trainings like DISC or, or Myers-Briggs or any of those, like they're a lot of times good in the moment. Uh, and then a week and a half later, you get back to normal everyday life and you kind of forget about those things. But what was cool with the Enneagram was that, and maybe this was just by chance, but having gone through it with a group of people and then also bringing it back home to my wife, who was even more skeptical than I was, it just became common language. And three weeks later, we were still talking about it. And Mm -hmm. two months later, we were still talking about it. And six months later, we were training, you know, the next level down of leadership in it. And a year later, I was getting asked to come and speak on it. And And so it stuck where others didn't. So that's, again, not to minimize the value of other personality assessments. I think they have their place, but I think Enneagram is something a little bit different and a little bit deeper, potentially with wider application. And so if you couldn't tell already, I'm a fairly big fan and it's actually how I make my full-time living now. (laughs) So Ryan, if you were to label me a type, what would it be? Why? And maybe go a little bit deeper in some of the things you think that I do or don't do or why. Right. So um, do you know what it means when a politician pivots when they answer a question? Yeah. Okay. That's what I'm getting ready to do. I'm getting okay. ready to not answer your question. Okay. Um, so- because if there's anybody in the Enneagram world that's listening to this, like they all know the golden rule of Enneagram is that you're not supposed to type other people, Right. So with that said, I also think it's a mistake to take all of it uh, way too seriously. And, you know, if, 
if we take everything seriously, then nothing is serious. I do think, you know, just from knowing you and talking to you, and I think I've even maybe heard you say, uh, have you told me before that you're, that you're a type seven? Is that what you said? No. No? Okay. No. For some reason, I was thinking that's what you told me. Uh, now I'm not even sure. When me and you did it, we figured out I was a type five, right? No. So, well, first of all, Nichols took, uh, I forget what test it was. It was one of the free versions, and it kind of spits out a couple options at you. I think five may have been one of the options. Eight was one of the options. Well, okay, so let me do this then. Let me um, do kind of an on-air diagnosis. How about that? Okay, that'd be cool. Yeah? Yeah. Okay. So, because when you get to tests, like what I always tell people about tests is there's a couple different camps. Some people are like all in on a certain test. Some people say, no, don't ever take a test. Uh, And then you have people that are in between on that. And I, I fall squarely in between. Um, I think there's really good tests and there's really bad tests and you can take a really good test and not, you know, be focused or have had a bad day or something like that. And, right. and it may not matter. Right. Generally with free tests, I tell people you get what you pay for with a free test. You know? right. So if you take a good test and you take it on a good day and you answer your questions, how you really truly are, uh, then I tell people that's a great starting point, but it's still okay to disagree with it as you dive more into the conversation. So, okay. All that being said, um, I would tell you right now that those three numbers that you named, five, eight, and three, um, those are on the table, but so is everything else, right? Okay. Yeah, cool. When Enneagram first came out, I was like, heck no, do not freaking, I I do not take this. By the time I actually took it, it was because I was curious and HEP had been beating me, beating it down my throat. (laughs) So all I have is practice, right? So having trained a whole lot of teams and a whole lot of leaders and seen real practical, tangible results in front of me and the companies that I work with, that's, that's my expertise that I'm writing on is practical real world, world application. And so if any psychologists that listen to this want to get into a fight with me, you win. I'm out, right? Like I got nothing. Um, <laughs> so... Yeah. So a little on air, you know, diagnosis for you here. Uh, yeah, my, let's go. Uh, let me, let me ask you a few questions here. Tell me, uh, tell me your best vacation. Just, I mean, not the whole story, but give me the highlights. Best vacation. I would consider it a vacation was when I lived in Breckenridge, Colorado for, for a summer but also my other favorites are like camping, things like that. Uh, yeah. Seclusion is awesome. I, lo- I love that. So a lot of outdoors, a lot of seclusion. I'm going to guess probably not a lot of schedule, right? Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Um, just no kind of whatever comes. Yeah. Yep. Okay. Would you say that you, um, when you make decisions, right, do you make more decisions with, uh, like your, your gut instincts with like rational thought or with emotions? Not really emotions, more rational thought and gut feeling. Um, I make a lot of rational thoughts after I have the gut feeling. I was going to say you typically make decisions with your gut, dude. Like when it hits, it hits and you're striking. Well, yes, but, but I solidify that by, my mind 
Well, yeah, of course you think. I'm not saying you're an idiot and just make a bunch of stupid. <laughs> like, like the, I think people get the wrong idea when they think about getting making decisions from your. Yeah, I go with yeah. my gut. Yeah, me too. That's that's how I am. Now, okay, same question, but how would your wife answer that about you? Hmm. She'd probably say I was more of a overthinker, make every decision, like don't make a decision until I'm absolutely sure. And I have 50, <laughs> 50 reasons why. That's so true. Let, let, let me do this. I'm going to give you the core needs for each of the nine types and you tell me which ones uh, resonate with you. I'm not going to give you the numbers that they go with. I'm just going to give okay. them to you in, in kind of a random ish order. Right. Okay. Uh, so you've got the need for safety and security. Uh, the need to avoid pain, okay. the need to be against something or to like to to fight for something, right? The need to avoid conflict, the need to be right, the need to help people, the need okay. to perform or you know achieve something, uh, the need to be different or unique, okay, uh, or the need to know to gather information. So I would say the need to be different is one and then to avoid conflict ish. <laughs> like I, I don't, I don't know. I say that hesitant just because like, you think that you value avoiding conflict. Yeah. Seclusion being by myself. Like I don't freaking want people around. No, 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 no. That's different. Okay. Conflict. <laughs> I guess we are on a very yeah. So I'm not saying avoiding people. I'm saying avoiding okay, conflict. Okay, okay. Those are two different. Bro, you got. We have a story in one of our episodes where at a party, Nichols is like, "Bro, I'm gonna be honest. I don't really want to talk to you right now." <laughs> and this dude's over here like, "Yeah, I just really value not engaging in conflict." <laughs> Listen to this guy. <laughs> okay, I'm an internal thinker, so I way overanalyze that. I'd probably say just to be different, be myself. At this point in my life, it's just, I want to be me. It's good that he's got a buddy here with him and that knows him. Yeah, yeah. Right, that you can call him a little bit on it. Um, He'd be doing the same crap to me, though, because I'd be answering all over the place. It's like, I'm, I'd am i be thinking I'm totally somewhere and I'm not, and you'd be like, you are not like that, dude. What um What do you do when you're really stressed out? When, I, when I'm really stressed out, I want to get by myself. I want to think about it. I want to know why I'm stressed out. I've learned for myself the best stress reliever is to sit in it, be in it, get through it, and be done with it. So for me, that means getting the heck away from everything. Like, that's why deer hunting, fishing, all that is huge for me. I, I would say that I'm the healthiest, or I feel the healthiest, like probably during deer season. <laughs> hmm. I have a lot of time by myself. You think you work better under pressure or when there's no pressure? If you would have asked me that a year ago, it would have been different, but currently probably under pressure. You work better under pressure. Pressure helps a little bit. You're right. Huh. Okay. It helps me not think about stuff and just get stuff done. When somebody asks you the question, uh, what are you thinking about? Can you give a clear articulate answer? Or uh, Every time. Yeah. Okay. Every okay. Time. That's yeah. That's good. That helps me eliminate. Some. Okay. Which one of these do you think resonates the most with you? Guilt, fear, or shame? Guilt just jumps out at me, even yeah. though I don't really think I feel guilty about much. But what do I resonate yeah. more with? I feel that the most. 
like if I feel those three, I don't feel fear or shame much at all. I feel guilty a lot of times for no reason. Okay. So let me ask you this. If there was a situation where there was somebody who, somebody that was hurting, somebody that needed help, right? Somebody that needed defending, but the reason they needed that was because they had screwed up and like, you know, broken a law or done something wrong. Where do you fall? Do you feel more pulled towards maintaining what's right or standing up for the person who's hurting? Probably standing up for the person who's hurting. Let me ask you this. Why did you go into the drug counseling stuff? Maybe want to stand up for the people who were struggling, you know, stuff like that. Yeah. Okay. So let me, let me take a a real stab (laughs) all over the place. (laughs) No, 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 no. I think, I think I've got it figured out, but let me take a real stab here. You don't come off as like, you know, some pushover or anything like that. Like people know you'll stand up and, and say what needs to be said. And this may be asking you to be a little bit more vulnerable than what you were planning on being right now. But whenever there's a baby or a puppy in the room, do you just melt into a puddle on the floor with them? A piece of me does. Who's baby? <laughs> yeah. He's got his own now, you know. Yeah. There's, yeah. there's a piece of me that does, but there's also a piece of me that goes, <laughs> I, I mean, I don't know what what else I, I, that I do, but like, do I enjoy puppies and babies? Yeah, I do. Yeah. The piece of you that doesn't melt into the puddle in the room, do you resist that because you're afraid that people might take advantage of it? No. No? Okay. I'm not afraid of that. Okay. So, you know, of the numbers you, you listed earlier, the one that sticks out to me the most uh, would be the eight, right? Um, And a few reasons for that. Uh, You talked about getting this job, you know, because you were trying to, uh, I can't remember if you used the word advocate, but like stand up for, you know, and help people that couldn't which is really hallmark eight eights are like justice oriented, want to stand in the gap and, and fight on behalf of people who cannot fight for themselves. Right. Um, That's me a lot. Yeah. You know, and what's funny is eights um, they, you can take the most broken, wretched, pitiful person and put them in front of an eight and the eight will fight for them all day long. Right. And you can get somebody who feels the same way and an eight will team up with that person and just be, you know, partners. Uh, And if you take an average mediocre person who is not hurting, but it's also not fighting an eight doesn't have time for that person. Okay. Yeah. Does that sound accurate? Yeah. So what, when you asked the, that question earlier, there's a piece of me that was like, yeah, I mean, I, I definitely care about people that are hurting, but if they don't care to get better, then I'm just like, all right, cool. Yeah. <laughs> like, yeah. Suit yourself, you know? So when we, when we initially took this test uh, or when I was showing Nichols and had him take like the free version and I wasn't going to say this earlier because you were asking him to type you, but eight was the one that he got the strongest. And then when I, I pulled out the, one of the apps or whatever, and was kind of reading through some stuff and I, I didn't do it as thoroughly or slow as you did. Like I just asked a few like shotgun questions and um, a lot of the stuff he resonated with was the eight. So that's cool. Yeah, that would be my best guess. But that's also saying like, I don't believe that anybody is strictly one type. 
Now you, I think everybody has a dominant type, but yeah. we're all very three dimensional and have a lot to our personalities and stuff. And so you can have a lot of other types in you, but at the end of the day, if you had to choose between this or that, which one would you choose? That's your dominant type. Now you also talk about like getting away from people and stuff, which eights, whenever they, whenever they get stressed out, eights take on qualities of fives which are very reclusive, which are very like learning oriented, a lot slower paced in how they make decisions and take action. They have a lot less energy than they normally do when they get stressed out. Which is probably why that was one of your strong options because your answers, because it's, you know, it's only going by a a test. Right. And then when eights are really relaxed, they take on lots of qualities of twos, which are people that that help other people uh, a lot that are really servant hearted that that's where I was going with the babies and puppies thing. Right. Like, um, <laughs> I don't know that I necessarily resonate with the babies and puppies thing as much, but like the way that my mind and the way that I like with my skill set and things like that, I fall back on like, Hey, how can I teach somebody something new or how yeah. can I, show a friend how to change that battery in their car or how can I help my neighbor build a fence, which I did because he <laughs> helped me build mine. But, uh, well, you kind of helped another neighbor build a fence too, but she just didn't want it. <laughs> boy, boy, did you ever, uh, uh, so I was just going to say the whole reason I say the babies and puppies thing, that's like a half truth. Um, the, the only reason I say that is because the thing that makes eights take off the armor is innocence. Yeah. Yeah. And babies and puppies are innocent, right? Um, right. Innocent. I say that with quotes because I know that <laughs> babies certainly are not. But, you know, idealistically, they're not a threat to you or to eights rather. And so eights can kind of take off the armor and just be right. real and honest and open. Whereas most of the time they feel like they have to be tough and strong and fight for people. Right. Right. Uh, and so that's why I say babies and puppies. I know that's not everybody, but that's just my typical example that honestly usually just gets a laugh. <laughs> so I know, you know what I am, but so we don't have to go through the whole thing, but what would you say I am or what is it? Describe it. I am whatever you say I am. <laughs> oh gosh. Um, I think you told me before that you're a three, right? Like, um, yeah, dude, honestly, I am like, I am a dominant three, but I have a very strong four wing. So I, a lot of times find myself every now and again, I'll have a little like crisis. So I'll be like, am I a four? And then I kind of know I'm not, but yeah. <laughs> well, it's funny because wings, you, you bring up the subject of wings and wings can get confusing sometimes because people, you know, will be flapping that wing so hard that they forget <laughs> that that's not like really who they are. Right. And that's exactly how people work. We get so caught up in what we're doing that we forget you know, what we're supposed to be being. And that's, you know, a three with a four wing can do that. Right. And that's true outside of the Enneagram world. That's true just in humanity in general. Right. Yeah. And so um, a three with a four wing man wants to get things done, but also kind of wants to do it their own way a little bit. Like they don't mind winning in the same arena that other people have been winning in, but they want to do it with a little extra flair or a little bit <laughs> different than what other people have done, right? Yeah. A lot of times the, the wings are the way that we work out the core of who we are, right? Uh, so as a three with a four wing, you work out your threeness with some of the gifts of the four, 
right? I'm a one with a nine wing. And so I work out my oneness sometimes with the gifts of a nine. The hardest part about about the three and the four thing for me is that, the, like you said, the three, my kind of my dominant is achieve and do and, you know, always wanting to be the best kind of. And then the four is the is the it's my wing, but any four would feel that sense of uniqueness, wanting to be different. And so what stinks for me is as a three, I can be a chameleon. I can be in a room and I can relate to the different types of people there. Here's what's funny. I noticed this in a social setting once. I um, It's not that I act different with different people, but I it's kind of like personality mirroring. You sort of take on the traits of those that you're with. And so I was doing that. Yeah. 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 And I was and in a social setting the whole time is calling BS on it, dude. So I'm in a social setting with our buddy Ben and you know, Ben's just this really mild, timid, not, not timid, uh, gentle. Like he's just super chill. And I'm talking with Ben and then this big old country boy comes up and is now in the circle with me and Ben. Now I would typically cater to, you know, but they're both there. And I remember in that moment, like you said, the four in me was like, you can't do it. <laughs> and I remember being like, holy crap, who am I supposed to be right now? And it's not it's not as conscious like as I describe it. but Right. But that's one of the most uh, interesting things about a three with a four wing. So uh, there's a lot of different numbers that are positioned right next to each other on the Enneagram that have very different like polar opposite, you know, values and things. And that's true as much as any numbers with the three and the four, because threes, like you said, are the chameleons can wear any mask, put on any hat. And the fours, uh, fours are what I call my walking bullshit detectors, right? Like fours just want what's real and true and nothing else. If you're going to be fake with a four, if you're going to put a mask on with a four, fours, no, I don't got time for that. Right. And so it's really interesting when you have a three with a four wing or a four with a three wing, because the threes over here trying to, do what you're saying, like interact with different people on their levels, meet them where they're at. And your four wing is over there, like poking you in the ribs the whole time going like, you're a fake dude. You're a fake. Stop, bull- yeah. you know, BS in this thing and, and be real. Why are you being so fake? But three with a four wing is, um, that's a complicated one to be because your wing is always just poking you in the ribs, calling BS on, on who you're trying to be. I was going to say, this is interesting to me because I think about mine and Hep's friendship in this dynamic, right? Where I feel, I don't know, like there, there's, I feel like there's probably been a part of mine and Hep's friendship where each of us have been like, man, I wish I could be like Hep in this situation. Or I bet Hep's thought, man, I feel like I could be like Nichols in this situation. When I'm like trying to fix something and just, I'm like, <laughs> I can't it's time to, to show you. Gotta call Nichols like, hey dude, how do I use a hammer? <laughs> yeah. But it, it's interesting to me in that dynamic because my when I get stressed out, I get real chill, stuff like that. I actually sometimes want to talk it out too. So like if if me and Jordan are fighting or or whatever, she she's the type of person that in that moment she wants to run and be by herself. Do you know what number she is? I don't. I don't. don't? But I, in that moment, because of the compassion side of it, I want to fix it so we can be, get back to being loving and stuff like that. Yeah. You know, with, with me and Hep, you know, cause we're married too. Um, (laughs) (laughs) 
there's been times in our friendship where the, the, I'm sure there's been times where we've kind of butted heads on things or whatever. I remember punching you in the leg in the choir room in like ninth grade. <laughs> I don't remember that at all. We were sitting there with in a circle with a couple of senior girls and we got into like a, a, a bickering thing and like you like kind of pushed me and I just like punched you in the thigh because we were sitting down. <laughs> I don't know why I remember that, but yeah, there's a flashback. Like it, it's funny. Well, that's, that's funny too, because like everything in me, I come from a family of being a family that's really abrasive. Like we'll fight you at the drop of a dime for looking at you wrong, like was raised that way. But I have no desire to fight a soul. Hep on the other hand, can't <laughs> not Ryan said to talk me off a ledge or two. <laughs> well, he can be very confrontational. Like, and even and even desires to be sometimes. At least I think so. Oh, we're doing this. Okay. Yeah, keep going. <laughs> oh, sorry. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding, dude. Keep going. Keep going. I'll bill uh, you guys for this therapy session later. <laughs> yeah, couples counseling. <laughs> it's buddy counseling. <laughs> but it, it, it's interesting to me. Like, I don't think one is better than the other. I think we we actually feed off of each other in a lot of things in a lot of ways, but. Anyway, I'll move on from that topic. What what do you think as far as like, do people have different Enneagram numbers for certain situations? Like, because I feel like I operate completely different in work than I do like home. Like when I, when I come home, I try to shut work off as much as possible with this whole virus thing going on. Uh, you know, and, and I, and my wife even hears how I talk to some of my employees that she's just like, Oh my gosh, like you don't ever talk to anybody else that way. You know, not that I'm a jerk, but I'm, I have to be very direct, um, clear, concise with my thoughts, things like that. But in, at, at home with friendships, I'm a lot more loose. I'll say whatever, you know, like, you know, what I'll say is that your Enneagram number doesn't change. Um, uh, I say that with an asterisk on it. Like I think that major traumatic events can potentially change your Enneagram number, but typically in life, most people don't change their Enneagram number once it kind of settles, which in our culture is somewhere around age 20. Usually what I will say though, is that you take on different qualities uh, of different numbers, depending on if you are, uh, stressed out if you're really relaxed. That's why I asked those questions earlier about your favorite vacation ever and and okay. what you do when you're super stressed out. And so like as an, it, you know, let's just assume you're an eight, right? Like, so if you are an eight, then eights when they're stressed out, take on a lot of qualities of five. It doesn't mean you become a five. You're still an eight. You just kind of add on top of it to some qualities of five. Could be positive, could be negative, Right. And when you're really relaxed, eights take on qualities of two. And again, could be positive, could be negative. So myself as a one, right, I take on qualities of a seven when I get really relaxed. And I tend to take on some of the more negative qualities of a seven. But when I'm stressed out, I take on qualities of a four. And I tend to take on more of the positive qualities of a four under stress. Now, it's not fatalistic. Okay. Um, it doesn't mean that you can't choose or learn to take on positive qualities of different numbers. Uh, awareness is a big, big deal. Once you're aware of those things, you start seeing the flags that get thrown whenever you start doing some of the more negative things. 
And I think at that point you can kind of choose or learn to take on more of the positive things. And so does the circumstance change your Enneagram number? Uh, no, but it does uh, change maybe some of the, the add-ons or the, the different ways that you express what your number is. Well, that's interesting. I can see why you're so passionate about it for sure. <laughs> <laughs> it gets deep quick, man. My, my journey into exploring the Enneagram has been probably one of the most helpful things in my identity and, and, you know, that quest to figuring out, especially as, as you're growing up and entering new season, you know? Yeah. Well, and that's why I do like what I do, you know, with my, like I work with a lot of different teams and helping leaders to understand their people and helping teams to understand each other. Because when we can understand each other and view the world through each other's eyes, uh, then we can have empathy. We can communicate in ways that make sense and, and we can, move this whole thing forward and stop, you know, bickering each other and trying to get each other to become more like ourselves and be accepting and loving and actually productive with each other. Absolutely. Absolutely. With that a hundred percent. As we kind of wrap things up, I know we've been going for a little while. I know you've got some different resources, website, things like that with all the different things that you do and are a part of. Where can we find you? Tell them where your blog is too. Cause I like reading, I like reading that. So uh, my website is evergreenteams.com, but it's evergreen with only the first E in it. So it's E-V-R-G-R-N teams, plural, dot com. Uh, the blog is there. Um, I've got a personal blog on Medium that I put some other like non-Enneagram stuff, you know, on. Uh, but you can find uh, find me on Instagram. I think it's just Ryan underscore Mayfield. Ennea teams is my business account. If you want Enneagram related team based stuff, Ennea teams, uh, and then Facebook is evergreen teams, uh, as well. And so, uh, yeah, you'll find all that stuff on there. And if you need links to all that, it's all on the website, evergreenteams.com evergreen with just the first D. Awesome. Well, dude, thanks for hanging with us. I honestly, when we're doing this, cause, cause we've done this without the mic and all that in the recording and stuff, we've just sat around talking us three, so I kind of forget we're doing this podcast and I was just so like, as you were talking, I found myself being so intrigued by some of the stuff and the way you're explaining it. So hopefully everyone else got a kick out of it and liked hearing me and Nichols be buddies. <laughs> Get some couples, <laughs> couples counseling. Yeah. Yeah. But yeah, man, thanks for, uh, thanks for hanging with us. Yeah, for sure. Ryan, I, I always love getting to hang out with you and, and help obviously too. Not as much help anymore. He's okay. <laughs> yeah. I'm just kidding. For real though, it's since I've met you, man, you've been a great dude. Love talking to you. Well, I appreciate that and I appreciate you guys and always excited when, you know, one of your podcasts comes out. I I appreciate the willingness to press into subjects that would scare most people away. And so I would just uh first of all, thanks for doing that. And second, I uh, encourage you to keep doing it because far too few people will. Hey, it might scare a lot of people away even more, so it's all right. (laughs) All right, man. Well, hey, guys, thanks for tuning in. Leave us a comment. Shoot us an email. Let us know what you thought. And definitely go check out more of Ryan and follow his accounts and see what he's up to. A lot of cool stuff. So we will tune in next time. Holla.